Hello and welcome to the good friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. Now our regular co-host, Matthew Sanderson, sadly still unable to join us as he's still recovering from a long bout of illness. But we're pleased to be joined by guest host, associate editor for Call of Cthulhu and line editor for the Rivers of London role-playing game, Lynn Hardy. Welcome, Lynn. Good evening. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Lynn. It's been a while. It's lovely to get to chat to the pair of you again. Yeah, it's, it's been far too long. Now, we mentioned, or I mentioned that you were line editor for the Rivers of London role-playing game, which has to do with the Rivers of London novels, which are about a police officer in London. And this episode you know, relates somewhat to that. It's about breaking the law. Cue Judas Priest. <laughs> it's about, well, what happens when your Call of Cthulhu investigators' misdeeds catch up with them? How do we handle that? But before we get into all that felonious stuff, what is going on? Well, the next release from Chaosium, which should be available in a couple of weeks from the day that we're recording, which is March the 4th, is the Keeper's Tips book, which Mike put together. He contacted various keepers with various levels of experience and got them to contribute their tips and advice for keepering Call of Cthulhu. So that should be available, hopefully, in a friendly local gaming store or from the Chaosium website very soon. And we'll have another publication of our own out very soon, The Blasphemous Tome, Issue 9. Well, not very soon, in a couple of months, in, uh, <laughs> in June 2022. And we're still welcoming submissions. The deadline for that is early April, so around April the 6th, we're welcoming illustrations, black and white illustrations, or articles of up to around 500 words. If you want to send those to us at submissions at blasphemoustomes.com. And now on to our main topic, breaking the law. Okay, well, let's face it. Investigators are usually criminals. <laughs> They don't always start out that way, but it's only a matter of time before they're running around committing fraud, setting fire to buildings, or just plain murdering people. Obviously, if this were happening in the real world, these actions would ideally have consequences. But what about in our games? Do they always end up as criminals? Short of the occasional one-shot... I mean, let's think about campaigns primarily here, because that probably fits better. Mm-hmm. I can't think of a single Call of Cthulhu campaign I've been involved with, either as a keeper or a player, which hasn't involved breaking and entering, kidnapping, arson, theft, murder. Grave robbing, grave robbing, the occasional um, oh, yeah. occasional <laughs> bit of assault, general assault next to murdering. Yeah. yeah. Well, it just happens. I think if it happens, it's because... You're an individual and you're forced to take the law into your own hands. Because mm -hmm. if we're talking about being a criminal, we're talking about breaking the law. So 
it's not at our disposal as a player character to go to the police or the authorities mm. because we know they're not going to deal with this threat. Either they're not going to take it credibly or they're not going to know how to deal with it. Or we're the only people that know how to deal with it because, you know, we've read stuff in tomes or, you know, whatever. We've got some knowledge that isn't going to be transferable to the authorities for whatever reason. Or maybe the authorities are going to cover it up, you know. So we're forced to take the law into our own hands and do things which may involve using force, even deadly force, I guess. Yeah, I mean, let's face it, even if you're playing a police detective or a police officer, mm. there's going to come a point where you have to seriously bend the law to be able to keep the investigation going or cover up the acts of your, your fellow compatriots. So I suppose as writers and as keepers, we're often putting the players and their investigators in situations where we may not necessarily have given them a lot of alternative if they want to progress the plot. Yeah, and I think that's an interesting thing about playing police officers. It's something that hadn't occurred to me when I was researching or or thinking about this episode. But yeah, even if you are playing a member of the constabulary, for example, it's not as if you're going to get a particularly good reception if you go to your chief inspector or superintendent or whatever and say, all right, there's this murderous cult running around London. All right, you might be able to sell them on that. It might be a bit tricky, but mm. you might be able to sell them on that. But they're dealing with uh, inhuman monsters and their plan is to raise a dead god and enslave all of mankind. You'd be off to Broadmoor before you could say boo. Yeah, basically, yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I suppose if you can sort of like keep it in the mundane, you know, you, you can bluff your way through it and, and blame human agency. You know, there's there's go for the most logical, credible explanation. But yeah, you know, there's, there's still going to be that point where you're probably going to end up doing something seriously dodgy and underhanded because there may not be any way around it. And yes, explaining to your gods that your gods, <laughs> <laughs> explaining to your, your uh, superior officers that you're just popping out to deal with a biarchy is not really going to cut it. And also, that's a really good situation, I think, because if you dress it up and sort of say, oh, you know, there's a gang using this warehouse and I've got intel that they've got somebody and they're going to kill them or torture them or whatever, because you can't say, you know, there's a biaki, you can't say there are monsters and so on. So you can't relate the level of threat. Mm. So if you do get a bunch of your compatriots to go in, you're putting them in great danger. That's a, a moral dilemma, really. You know, so you can't really do that. I had exactly the situation come up in a game I was running recently for Ain't Slayed Nobody, this ongoing World War Cthulhu London thing that I've been running for them. One of them had established that he had this old friend who was now a police officer, and they'd been talking for a bit, and the police officer had become a bit interested in some of the things that the player characters were doing, partly because it was blatantly criminal, but also partly because he thought his old friend might be in trouble. And all that ultimately did was get the officer killed because he came along, he poked around, investigated a warren of ghouls and got eaten. There wasn't really anything they could do to prepare him for that. Yeah. And I think if I remember right, it's a while since I looked at it, but I think that's one of the things we actually discuss in the Keeper's Tips book is, well, what happens if you do attempt to call in law enforcement? Well, chances are that you're actually just sending them off to their inevitable slaughter. Yeah. 
because they're not going to be equipped to deal with what they're likely to find there. And, you know, the repercussions and moral blowback from that kind of thing. I mean, as an aside, I think the fun thing to do there, if you can, if you kind of got it prepped or you can do it quick, is to let them play the the SWAT team or the special weapons team that go in to the warehouse. Yeah. And you play that to kind of destruction and then go back to your regular investigators and let them hear about that in the news or let them pick up on the pieces afterwards. Yeah, that's a really nice way of dealing with it, actually, is that, you know, because that really helps underline that, the, you know, there are consequences to what your investigators are getting up to, because it's not just them. There is collateral damage wherever they go, basically. So ultimately, what we're saying is criminality is the moral choice. <laughs> well, sometimes, yeah, I think so. <laughs> No, I'm not making a light of that. I think I think it is. I wasn't saying it was. Yeah. It was a joke, but it was a serious joke. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at things, I mean, Agatha Christie, certainly, as the big touchstone for murder mysteries, it's interesting because you see her writing evolve over time, where to start with, she's very sort of like they must be subject to the rule of law. But by the later novels, it's like natural justice. Mm. This person has done wrong. The law isn't necessarily going to deal with it. They get their just desserts kind of thing. And I think there is quite often in Call of Cthulhu, there's this element of natural justice as opposed to legal justice for what's going on. Yeah. Mm. But I think there's also a concept of the greater good. The greater good. In that you are perhaps having to break into a museum and steal priceless artefacts. And under normal circumstances, that would be a terrible thing to do, particularly if you end up having to injure a security guard in the process or frighten them even. But ultimately, it's getting you the tools you need perhaps to save the world. So that bit of criminality, even that bit of physical harm that you're doing, is potentially justifiable even if it doesn't seem yeah, particularly nice. Mm. Then again, some Call of Cthulhu investigators are just fucking psychopaths. <laughs> oh, the murder huh. hobos, yes. Thankfully, I don't think I've ever really had to deal with murder hobos, particularly in Call of Cthulhu. Oh, I, I have. I think, yeah, I'll come to that perhaps a bit later in the episode, but yes. One of the sweetest legal infractions that ever happened was actually in a game of Scritch Scratch where they broke the speed limit trying to escape from the bad guy. <laughs> it didn't end well, but you know. <laughs> I'm going to push it up to 56 miles per hour. Oh, oh, they were doing 50 in a 30 mile an hour zone, which was quite disgraceful, which oh, is why it didn't end well. I mean, I was thinking about that. What is criminality? It's breaking the law, right? But we're not really talking about... Uh, that was exactly what I was going to say. We're not talking about breaking the speed limit. I've <laughs> broken the speed limit as a person. I don't think of myself as a criminal. I don't know. You know, where do you draw the line? <laughs> but what we're talking about is more things that are going to get you put in prison, mm -hmm. right? Really? Yeah. I would say as a general measure. So whether some of these things would necessarily get you put in prison, but, you know, they'd see you prosecuted and fined or, or imprisoned. So breaking an entry, obviously murder, assault. Yeah, all these various things that we see investigators end up doing. <laughs> but Lynn, I mean, you said that you hadn't seen a Call of Cthulhu party go full murder hobo. Have, have you had that experience, Paul? Well, what do you mean? Let's define your term murder hobo, because it's a term that's banded around, but... Well, basically, they're 
just immediately jumping into violence, murder, quite blatantly so, playing as if there are no consequences for what they're doing. Perhaps a disproportionate level of, of violence and criminality than the situation calls for. Like shooting an NPC in the face because they're soliloquizing, that kind of thing. Well, I mean... I haven't played with you and Matt very much for a while, so um, I haven't seen so much of that. But if I'm going to pick somebody, then that's you two. But I think even then, I think it's not thinking back to that Down Dark Trails game we played. Um, you didn't just go into town and just kill everyone. So it's like you went into town, and once you sort of find out who you think the bad guys are, then the barrier to using lethal force is very low. So do you mm. think that's actually a, a thing to do with the setting that the level of acceptable criminality changes depending on which setting you're using? Is it more acceptable to go in all guns blazing in down darker trails and pulp than it is in a standard 1920s game? I don't think it is particularly. I'd argue that it possibly is, and not necessarily because it's a reflection of the setting, or at least not directly, but I think something like Down Darker Trails, where it's an Old West setting, where we're primarily familiar with it through fictional media and where it feels unreal in a way that certainly a contemporary game might not, and even a 1920s game might not. It feels more mythologized, it feels more rooted in genre tropes. And so as a result, I think dealing with solutions violently, pulling out your guns and shooting down the wrongdoers might feel more acceptable because it feels more like a story. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's still just as illegal, but as you say, it's more sort of the genre trope, isn't it? The sort of like the pulling out your guns and having the, the gunfight at the OK Corral kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, I think if it's a, a more realistic, let's say, you know, a something we can directly relate to a more realistic modern domestic setting then perhaps the barrier is a little higher but i mean if you witness people who just for no reason just go around shooting everybody scott not for no reason but um yeah it's interesting i'm running a game for how we roll at the moment not the two-headed serpent but a different one and the campaign up to a certain point had been very gentle. There'd been almost no violence in it. There'd been a bit of threat. But then there was an escalation on the part of a couple of NPCs. And the player characters reacted in, I think, maybe a proportionate way. It's difficult to say because they certainly were in real danger and it, it did make sense that they were fighting for their lives. But it sort of escalated from there to we see an NPC, we kill them quite quickly. And I was struggling a bit at the time thinking, okay, thinking about this in story terms, I might be able to brush some of the violence under the carpet in terms of not having to deal with the repercussions but once we start killing law enforcement officers then it's going to be a bit difficult to turn a blind eye to that hmm. that's one of the things that put me in mind of doing this episode which is i'm still trying to process how to deal with that situation yeah i mean that's it because there have to be really repercussions 
when they they're going on killing sprees of that kind of magnitude and against those sorts of targets who are not known for letting those sorts of things slide. But how do you work that into a game so that it it doesn't become the be all and end all of the game? Yeah. But no, there there are genuine consequences for you doing that. You know, I'm not just going to pretend that you didn't slaughter an entire precinct full of 1920 Chicago police officers, you know, kind of thing. And I mean, how do you deal with that? How do you keep the campaign going? Do you do you make it more sort of like the fugitive, so it effectively becomes that the investigators <laughs> are on the run from the law and they're dotting from town to town? So you've got you sort of like the fugitive, um, the original series of the Incredible Hulk, that kind of thing, where you know you're you're going to a new place, you're solving a mystery, and then you're having to flee because the dogged detective is almost caught up with you, kind of thing, which is quite a nice linking mechanism for a campaign, mm-hmm. and obviously sustained many TV series for a good long time. Time. but you know is how would you deal with that how what would your sort of ideas for for dealing with the repercussions of them of your investigators doing something really seriously egregious that you can't just turn a blind eye to i mean i think there are levels to this there are levels of crime but just to start off with i think it depends what period we're playing in if we're playing yeah. in the 1920s then there's a sense of, of isolation back then and not just of being in the in the remote farmhouse or the little village miles from nowhere i think thinking back to the i watched the the uh, the netflix series about ted bundy and this was a killer in the 1970s a serial killer had a string of murders and by moving from one state to uh, another state it made it very difficult for the, the authorities to track him because they sort of showed you what the system was like then. You know, it would be people on telephones. There's no internet, obviously. To send information, it took time. So there just wasn't that network of information that now we just take for granted. You know, if, if somebody is seriously wanted, you know, as we see on films there and TV shows, sometimes their face will be on the TV, you know, playing in the general store when they walk in and they have to hurriedly, you know, dash out. But back then that just wouldn't happen. You know, it might be, if we go back to Down Dark Trails, the kind of cliched thing would be the wanted poster, you know, some kind of hand-drawn sketch of the person. But in the 1920s, if you were able to get to another state or to another country, or even, you know, head off into the, the countryside and hide up for a while, how difficult was it for them to find you? Well, I don't think you even had to go that far. Going back to a couple of uh, our earlier episodes, ones where we talked about Albert Fish and mm. one where I talked about Edgar Laplante as one of the the interesting NPCs, uh, the con artist who travelled all over the, uh, the West Coast. They both managed to stay one step ahead of the law quite often without moving around much at all. Fish did most of his crimes in the greater New York area, but the communications, even on that scale, were poor enough that the crimes generally weren't connected. There was more of a sense of trust in those days, so there was perhaps less of an inclination to piece together all those crimes and see them as being part of the same criminal spree but wasn't that that a a question of investigation they didn't necessarily have like a this is a black and white photo of albert fish and this is his name uh yeah look out for him it wasn't like that was it 
there had been witnesses to some of his crimes. I mean, right. there had been people who'd met him and spoken to him. He'd given aliases and he was quite a good con man. But there were eyewitnesses who completely failed to identify him in lineups, who identified the wrong people, confusing the situation. And so, as a result, the investigation just kept getting stalled and stalled and stalled, even when it looked like they really should have got him. And, you know, add on top of that, the you know, the very limited forensics that were available at the mm. time, you had fingerprints, sure, but as a technology, they'd only really been around for about 20 years at that stage, and they were very basic in their use. There, there wasn't a huge library of them. Referring to them was difficult, and even things like the ability to pull latent prints off fabrics and stuff like that, that didn't exist until the 1930s. But I mean, we're talking about the 20s as if that was a, I mean, you know, one of the reasons the police national databases and things were set up in Britain was because criminals could move from county to county and commit very similar Mm -hmm. crimes. And because there was no way of police forces sharing the information, people did go undetected. You know, again, as you were saying, spotting patterns of crime, it just didn't happen. So, you know, you couldn't track people's movements. I mean, obviously, you've got scale in America, which helps you to disappear but even in a relatively small country like Britain, you can still vanish, you know, in, into the relatively recent past. You know, it's, it was still mm. possible to, to just move over a county border and, it, you, you know, you'd pretty much have sorted yourself out and, and be away with it. But I think you highlight something there about for our games, you know, when we're thinking about the risk of arrest for the player characters one thing is to think about what do the authorities have on them is it that perhaps some npc got a a glimpse of them from the shadows when something took place they they saw them sort of breaking into a place and then you know afterwards there was a body found there or something like that so there'd be what we'd understand as like a photo fit you know a sketch of the character or do they have like name and address of the person Mm. so that level of identification i think think is going to be important right yeah i mean as scott said you know witness testimony is notoriously unreliable you get half a dozen witnesses who've seen the same thing they will all give you completely different answers Mm. you get suspicious as an investigator if they give you exactly the same answer because it tends to suggest they're lying and they've been collaborating but yeah i mean that is something that you know you can at least use or the investigators can use to their advantage is the vagueness of perpetrator descriptions and the the possibility that it could be someone else. It's not even the descriptions, it's just the ability of people to identify someone in the first place. So with Albert Fish, he kidnapped and murdered a young girl by going to her parents' place and basically sat there with her parents for the best part of a day talking to them before saying, oh, I'll take your young daughter off to my niece's birthday party if she wants, and then she was never seen again. But her mother then subsequently, over the course of the next few years, went to a number of different police lineups and on three separate occasions identified someone in the lineup as being the man who kidnapped her daughter. And in each one of those three occasions, it wasn't. It was someone completely different. So, mm. yeah, even something intimate like that, I mean, forget about just giving a, a description of someone you glimpsed from across the room. This is this is someone that she'd spent all day talking to who should have been seared yeah. into her memory. And she looked at someone else face to face three times and said, that's him. And it wasn't. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I mean, is this in part 
a function or perhaps an appeal of world-spanning campaigns that we see commonly in <laughs> Call of Cthulhu. You know, you start off in Master Nalathotep in America around New York, but, you know, one way or another, you end up leaving and going to another continent. Yeah. Well, it doesn't even have to be world-spanning. I mean, as you said, I mean, just moving around the US is enough. Because with the, the Edgar LaPlante stuff, he wasn't even moving between states. He was moving around quite often the same state, just between different cities, and that was enough. But we're talking at a time before the FBI existed. There was the Bureau of Investigation, the, the predecessor of the FBI. But that didn't really have the same scope and the same remit, and the technology they had access to was much more limited. But also... A lot of the stuff that you take for granted, like people reading news articles between towns and cities, you know, people tended to consume local news. So if there was, say, a group of investigators who'd gone around and knocked over a museum in, you know, a big city a couple of hundred miles away, then moved to another city within the same state, people within that city might never have heard of the crime. Or it might be a footnote on page 19 because it's not really important locally, but they've kind of reported it because they had a bit of space to fill. So, yeah, you know, it might be in the newspaper, but it might just be tucked away in such a, a non-prominent position that people will overlook it. But as you said, Paul, I mean, once you start moving internationally, that's a complete game changer. And I guess we're not just playing in the 1920s, of course, we're also playing in other periods, including the modern day. And the modern day is very different. You know, we've got a world with uh, face recognition cameras, gate recognition, fingerprints, passports, everything is tracked. DNA. Some people, <laughs> I won't say any more than that, some people are worried about being tracked with microchips in their blood. <laughs> but weirdly, they're carrying around mobile phones, quite good at tracking people yeah. everywhere you go. Yeah. I get a little thing from Google come through. I think I got one through today. I can't remember what the email is headed, something about Google Maps. And it has a little red line of everywhere you've been in the past month. And it's like, oh, wow. Oh, it's, it's creepier than that sometimes because they'll sometimes flag up a message and sort of say, oh, you went to this location and stopped there for a little while, but we're not quite sure what that is. Do you want to just give us the information of, of what this place was? Yeah, I find it bad enough when I book something and I don't tell Google Diaries and it adds it to my diary and it's like, what the heck? Oh, yeah. <laughs> my phone's pinging up because I'm supposed to be somewhere. How did it know? <laughs> So I think any investigator worth their salt is going to get through a lot of mobile phones. <laughs> yes, the, the classic burner phone. <laughs> it's like pain, you know, get shot. Well, they're harder to get hold of now because pay-as-you-go phones are not that common because obviously providers yeah. want you on plans because that's where they make their money. But no, I mean, it is interesting. And obviously, you know, my thing is murder mysteries and I'm a gigantic fan of Agatha Christie and Columbo. And it is always interesting to go back and, and look at some of these ones. I mean, okay, it's 50 years ago now, the Columbos, which is a horrifying thing to have to say. Oh, fuck. Yeah, no, they were they were the early 70s. <laughs> Don't hurt me like that. I know, I know. <laughs> you watch things like that. There's some of the Star Trek episodes. Like this is a Star Trek episode, where uh, original series, where they have to break into a military base and there's no cameras or anything. Yeah. The, the, sort of like the lack of surveillance 
makes period wrongdoing a lot easier because you're not carrying a mobile tracking device. You're not being watched constantly. People don't have little cameras that are incredibly good quality that they can just take endless photographs on. I mean, we're all old enough to remember when you used to get a little cartridge that had 12 shots on it and you had to be really careful (laughs) what you took a photograph of. And there was still no guarantee it would be any good when you got the pictures back. (laughs) There's just this massive number of ways that you can be seen, tracked, traced, doing things that you shouldn't be doing in a modern setting. But then you can also use that very nicely to set investigators up. But I think also, fundamentally, the thing that gets a lot of criminals caught hasn't changed that much in a hundred years or however long we want to say. And that is stupidity. Yes. (laughs) A lot of criminals are caught because they get caught in the act because they're being too blatant about it or because they tell the wrong people and brag about it or because they're careless with selling off stolen goods. That doesn't change. And I think investigators are probably as susceptible to that as anything else. I mean, maybe it's not stupidity, maybe it's bad luck. But certainly something like getting caught in the act. I mean, that's going to be just the same in 1920 as it is now. Yeah. I guess the question is, how much fun is this in the game? If you do Mm. bring it in and your players have committed some crimes, whatever they might be on, on the scale of crimes, and you have the police turn up at their door and arrest them and take them down the station and charge them, is that fun? How do we deal with that? I suppose it's it depends on how you're going to do it. I mean, if you're devious and and you know you want to set the the investigators up, you maybe you've got an idea where you can sag it into a prison-based scenario. Mm. It's quite an interesting setup then, isn't it? You know, the, the the investigators have done something illegal in the course of their current investigation. And they do get hauled in and maybe it's just while they're locked up in the police station overnight that then becomes its own investigation its own uh, scenario or it can i mean i suppose in some ways you can just use it to maybe put the frighteners on the investigators you know just to sort of like ramp the tension up that little bit more it's a case of well no you're not just dealing with the mythos now you're also dealing with humans and and how are you going to balance all of this and i suppose it just it really does depend on how much you think your players are going to enjoy that and how much of a headache it's going to cause for the ongoing storyline, really. I think the latter option you talked about there is always an interesting one, which is when the players become aware, ideally, that they have attracted the attention of the authorities. Because then they're going to have to be a bit more clever and a bit more creative with how they go about doing things. I mean, obviously, like you say, it depends on the group of players. Some players may find that frustrating, but I think a lot of players are going to find that additional challenge, yes, does perhaps require a bit of creativity and may actually be quite fun to play with. And I suppose you don't have to arrest them straight away. I mean, you could have Mm. associates basically saying, oh, you know, the police have been around asking about you. What have you been up to kind of thing? You know, so you can at least, you can warn them so that they have the opportunity to avoid getting arrested. 
<laughs> mm. Well, and also a lot of it is going to depend on the personality of, say, the detective who's after them. A couple of weeks back, I read a Patricia Highsmith novel called The Blunderer, which I think is fantastic inspiration for this kind of thing. As the title suggests, it's about a, a guy who sort of blunders into, well, not, not even a real crime, but it, that's almost beside the point. But he has this absolutely obsessive police detective on his trail who is willing to cut all sorts of corners, use brutality, try to frame people, try to play suspects off against each other in the hope that they'll just plain murder each other and tidy his case up for him. You get a detective like that involved, someone who is perhaps unscrupulous and dangerous, and that's going to be a lot more interesting than just someone who tidily puts all the pieces together and then slaps the handcuffs on you. I mean, as we said at the start, it is about the player characters taking the law into their own hands, it's often the case. And we're playing a game where everybody accepts there are monsters and magic. Do we also kind of accept that also the law is always kind of in the background? You know, that we're never really going to just get arrested and go to prison because that would be a bit dull. But, you know, they're there, but they're not really going to get us. <sighs> I'd say a lot of that comes down to suspension of disbelief. Mm. If you have player characters committing relatively minor crimes, let's say a bit of breaking and entering, you know, they they break into a library and steal a copy of the Necronomicon, something like that, then you can probably brush that under the carpet. But if they do that in broad daylight, shoot the head librarian, shoot a few witnesses, and leave a trail of blood um, and you know, witnessed by a whole bunch of survivors, then it's going to be a bit more difficult just to pretend that never happened. So what do we do? I mean, that's, that is an extreme example, but if they've done things that are clearly going to get the law after them without question, then, I mean, one solution, perhaps we just talk to the players and sort of say, well, how do you see your characters not mm. getting arrested yeah. here? You know, what are you doing to avoid getting arrested? And rather than sort of pushing them, you know, let them say what their characters are doing to hide up. That might be, like we talked about, moving geographically. It might be they adopt a disguise. It might be you know, whatever creative thing they can kind of think of. Because they, they're players. They're going to know that, same as us, they, they know that they'd get arrested for that stuff. You touch upon disguises there. Again, this is something that was much easier in the 1920s because there weren't necessarily quite the same identity documents and so on. It was really easy just to create false identities, well, comparatively easy, and just pretend to be someone else, just invent someone else out of whole cloth and you know, just adopt that identity. And the world was black and white then as well, so it was kind of easier. Absolutely. <laughs> but no, I think that's a good idea. But that should be part of your gaming anyway, is inviting your players to come up with solutions to the problems that they've created, rather than <laughs> imposing what you think should happen. I mean, you might, you might want to sometimes, but, you know, it's, it's always a good idea to go, well, you know, you've done this, but, well, how are you going to get out of it now? Are you just going to keep wandering around doing this? Or are you, are you going to be a little bit more circumspect about harassing cult <laughs> members in future? <laughs> it just seems like taking that approach takes the weight off you as as the keeper and it also means that as the keeper you're not hitting your players with a you know law and order stick yeah which i can feel like people we might be kind of giving the impression that that's what you should be doing 
Yeah, I think, again, it depends what the group is going to find fun. But I think, yeah, as well as Lynn suggested, I mean, inviting creative solutions to this could be quite a lot of fun. And again, depending on the setting, there's always the option of <laughs> some of the things that people do in the real world to get out of situations like that, like corruption. You're just plain bribing mm. police officers, calling in personal favours from police officers they know. You could even put it down to, if assuming a character had a really high credit rating, put it down to a credit rating role. Yeah. It's sort of, I have lots of friends in high places. Are you really going to risk your career over this officer? Yeah. yeah. And connections. Yep. Mm. I'm sure if you were friends with, let's say, the Prime Minister, might help. Yeah. And that's a nice way of using some of the, the skills that aren't necessarily used a lot and aspects of backstory that aren't necessarily used a lot. Mm. Is, as you say, use credit rating. How well are you bribing these people with your credit rating or your social standing that is attached to your credit rating? How are you using those contacts from your backstory to help get you out of the way? Are they providing false ID, false papers for you because they owe you a favour? Do they work for the police and are happily losing the paperwork so that it never gets into the system sort of thing? Another thing that occurs to me is, as we talked about in the, in the Danger and Peril episode, about a way of illustrating the danger that the enemy offers towards you is, as a keeper, you know, have NPCs murdered and killed in, in horrific ways to kind of illustrate the threat that the, the investigators is under. You could do the same with law and order and their contacts, the, the NPC contacts that the investigators have, next time they go to see them, well, they're in jail. Yeah. I've been re-watching The Sopranos and I think it was season four. For about the first half of season four, one of the main characters, one of, one of the gangsters, Paulie, is in jail. And we see him, but we just see him taking like phone calls to some of the other characters. It's entertaining, and uh, after a while he comes back out. But, you know, that bit of prison time was uh, an interesting part of the story. You'd have to be careful with that so that if it's someone that the investigators have used frequently, that you're not removing an investigator asset, because that could almost feel like you're punishing them by doing that. If it's someone that they rely on a lot to help them through things, but no, I mean, that's a really interesting one. Is that like, well, yeah, you know, this this person's gone. There are consequences, but even for having helped you, potentially. Yeah. You might not have got caught, but they did because they helped you. But even then, I don't think removing an investigator asset like that is necessarily a bad thing, depending on the point of the campaign and, and so on, because it can be quite a tense thing that if there's, for example, some civil servant you've been relying on to feed you information or do research for you, and then all of a sudden they've been nicked because they've been accessing records they shouldn't have done or bribing people on your behalf or something like that, then, yeah, suddenly you're having to go outside your comfort zone, you're having to adjust the approach you're taking in the game. Or if this NPC is really important to you, maybe that suddenly becomes a side plot where you're trying to clear their name, trying to get them out of prison, or or maybe even just break them out. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's basically how, how what opportunities for storytelling do each of these solutions give us, and how much more trouble are they mm. going to get the investigators into? if they go down that route. And also, 
what you were talking about earlier about whether it would be fun for the investigators to actually get arrested and go on trial and go into prison, depending on the group, and some groups may absolutely seize upon that. I mean, I can sort of imagine, for example, if I were a player whose investigator had been caught and were put on trial, I could have loads of fun in a trial scene, say, introducing the Necronomicon as evidence or something like that, or <laughs> in a desperate situation, summoning a Bayaki in the courtroom or something like that. <laughs> but on the other hand, yeah, I mean, like you could angle for an insanity plea just by you know, explaining what really happened. And yeah, as, as you said, Lynn, if they do get sent off to prison, then I think that opens up all sorts of other possibilities. Like, um, I'm sure the cult has got people in prison as well. So then, are you going to survive that? Yeah, based on the siege, you know, you can give a really good base on the siege um, scenario in, in, a, in a prison setting, you know, things like that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, or trying to organise a jailbreak using eldritch means. Yeah, precisely. You can get up to all sorts of fun. So if you have players who aren't confident role-playing trial scenes and things like that, you can, as you can do with puzzles, you can reduce it to maybe a couple of roles, so maybe a combined law and yeah. social skill role where you're trying to argue your case to get yourself off. And if you succeed at both, then, you know, you've managed to put over the most stellar legal argument. And obviously that witness is lying or or is mistaken or whatever. <laughs> if you fail at one or other of them, then perhaps it's sort of like I mean, if you were in Scotland, you could go for not proven, you know, sort of like, well, we don't know. We're not clearing you, but we're not sending you to jail either kind of thing. It's one of these things where you you have to make sure that you have options for people who aren't confident doing the whole full I am defending myself in court spiel versus the people who who love that sort of thing and would happily go for it and chew the scenery for all it's worth. But also, as I think you said earlier, you've got to make sure it's the kind of thing that your group is going to find yes. fun. Because I can imagine for a lot of people, there's almost going to be an equation of my character has been arrested to it's almost like my character is dead my character is out of play that's it i've certainly seen players who i think would rather anything than have their character be arrested under those circumstances who are willing to go full bonnie clyde mm. and have a fatal shootout with the police or something like that in which case that probably is the end of the campaign right there and so i think you're right you've got to be absolutely certain because it also strikes me that given the situations that you're perhaps going into as a call of cthulhu investigator with your companions Jail's not a nice place, but going to jail is probably the safer option. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. <laughs> it might be, unless those courtists are in there waiting for you. Well, that's the creative bit, of course. Yes, yeah, it's what gangs and threats are inside the prison. But that's almost, like we said, like another game in itself. And if that's splitting the party, I mean, that's like an extreme split in the party. You can regularly split the investigators. You know, two of them go off to the spooky old house, two of them go to the library. But if one of them's going to jail for... 10 years, well, that's hard to reconcile, I think. I'm not sure how you'd deal with that. Yeah, I think you would need a replacement investigator for the main campaign. Mm. But you could have fun, I guess, having a sort of side game just with that imprisoned investigator. Yeah, 
Yeah. I guess also there's the option that the other investigators might want to break them out or free them somehow, which again introduces all sorts of juicy plot stuff. And if they've got the right kind of magic spells, right kind of mythos spells, mm. that could be a lot mm. easier. They've got consume likeness, which is pretty grim, but even like spells like dominate and so on, yeah. used to the right effect, could end up getting them out. You could have loads of fun trying to find some way of getting them out using a dimensional shambler. And I was thinking about hiding a, um, a gate box in a cake. You know, why not? Why hide a file in there? Just stick a gate box yeah. in it. It's not the cake, it's, it's the, the box. box yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like the idea of it being in the cake. Where's the prisoner gone? Um, he stepped into a cake and vanished. <laughs> the cake at him. <laughs> Or dreaming. Yes. If you've got a dreamland scenario, you could play that from your prison cell, I guess. Yeah. Mm. And indeed, I guarantee you'll remember the name of the film, Scott, which I've totally forgotten. And we did an episode on it, I think, about the guys in the prison cell who have a book. Oh, Malefique. Malefique, right. Am I right in thinking it was setting us inside a prison or is it yeah. all inside that cell? Yeah. And they kind of get the Necronomicon kind of thing, don't they? Yeah. I think it all takes place in the same cell. Yeah. can't remember if there are any scenes elsewhere in the prison. But yeah, it's certainly all within prison. But yeah, it is those those four guys who get this occult tome that's, yeah, not technically the Necronomicon, but it is totally the Necronomicon. <laughs> Kind of an analogue of. Yeah, and the book seems to have its own agenda, and as they're using it to try to get themselves free, the book has other plans for them. That's actually a really nice mythos thing, isn't it? It's the fact that humans think they're using the mythos for their own ends, but they're really not in the end. It's, mm. it's completely the other way around. So, Lynn, you talked about detective shows like Columbo. Yeah, obviously, Columbo's the detective. But what about any media where the people do end up going to prison because they don't tend to do they if we think of like say buffy or supernatural there are loads of deaths in those shows <laughs> but the main characters never seem to go to prison well i would say obviously prison break but i never actually watched it so i can't comment too much <laughs> on that but that starts in a prison right that is in a prison but it's them trying to get out of it <laughs> yeah kind of different um, so right? yeah um i cannot actually i'm, I'm re-watching broken wood mysteries at the moment and i've just got to the last episode of season six i think it is where they they end up actually in a women's prison and there's a whole load of people that they've put in jail in the previous five seasons are in there ah. and it's that's kind of all all set in there which is quite interesting the way that they they bring mm. that together it's not one of the best ones, but it's an interesting idea that you get to see what's happened to the people that they've arrested and put in prison in the earlier episodes. So how many like cast members end up in prison then, like, like, like your main characters? There's one main character. Well, not main character, main right. character, but it's a character that's, that's in a couple of seasons as sort of like a, a regular support character and they end up in there. So, yeah, you know, there's there are some named characters that have history that, you know, it's not just person that turns up for this particular murder that end up in there. Hmm. They did actually have the wherewithal to put in someone that you'd followed along that you'd thought was guilty of various crimes up to the point they actually do commit a crime. And then you get to see 
see her again in this particular episode. I mean, normally that kind of thing, it, it's almost sort of like a one-off, isn't it? Where one of the main characters will get arrested and they'll be in jail for that particular episode, but then they usually get sprung or released by the end of it. It's never a sort of permanent thing, right. really. At least I can't remember it, if there's anyone. That also sort of makes the point, it, it maybe lends itself better to smaller games, smaller player groups. Yeah. If, you, if they are going to go into prison, then if you're playing it one-on-one, then it's it's not easy, but it lends itself to that a lot more because you're just dealing with one character. If a bunch of people get arrested, to be honest, I don't know. But it seems to me it's not that likely they all end up in the same prison or, you know, you know in the same block or whatever. And it occurs to me that if you're playing a one-on-one game, then you could almost have the player character take on a kind of Hannibal Lecter type role <laughs> where because of their knowledge of the mythos and the weird things that are going on that you have people from the outside coming in and consulting with them about some weird crimes and weird yeah. shit that's going on out there. And let's face it, it would be a really weird twist on Nero Wolf you know, the investigator that never leaves their house. <laughs> they never leave their prison cell. <laughs> yeah, that could actually be quite an interesting one-on-one setup. And it also occurs to me that you could have a situation where, say, the detective who ended up catching up with the investigators and is responsible for putting them away for the horrible things they've done, then learns what the truth behind why they did what they did and then maybe is in the position of trying to undo some of the damage they did or contain the situation i imagine in in a game like that i might want to perhaps get the players to temporarily play that detective and some of their colleagues or alternatively just have them as npcs and have them interact with the and the player characters inside prison and then work together to try to get them sprung again Mm. i suppose it's again it's this whole one shot versus campaign thing as well isn't it because you can Mm. do certain things in one shots that you can't that are more difficult to handle in campaigns if you don't want to bring things to a grinding halt i mean everybody getting arrested and going to prison at the end of a one shot is actually a really satisfying conclusion potentially Mm. whereas it's not necessarily if you're only two chapters into a campaign yeah and i think as well that because most one-shots tend to be much more compressed in time, not just because they're one-shots, but because of that classic player habit of just wanting to get through all the bits as soon as possible and their, their characters just jump from one scene to another without resting. I think it's much easier to turn a blind eye to some of the criminality because there generally isn't time within the time scale of a one-shot for the consequences to catch up with the player characters. Mm-hmm. I mean, sure, maybe it's the final scene, like you say, but short of maybe a car chase with the police or having to run away during a, a burglary or something like that, there probably isn't time for those things to happen. And I think that's actually a good thing to raise because people tend to forget they can just run away. Hmm. They, they don't have to turn around and start shooting or throwing things or getting into fights. That you know they are legitimately allowed to leg it if, if that's a viable option. I think people forget that a lot. You know, I've got a one shot where I've kind of catered for the police perhaps being called because it's likely that gunshots will ring out in a residential area and the police will be summoned or perhaps the player characters call the police. And because the threat is to do with magic and possession, then 
yeah, it just so happened when they called the police, it was just a lot of fun to have the, the possessing spirit possess one of the police officers. <laughs> there were two cops, and as, as one of them was lining the investigators up against the wall, the investigators could see the other cop drawing his gun and shooting the second cop, and then like all hell breaks loose. So it depends on what the threat is, but the threat can, if the police are called to a situation, the threat can sometimes actually make use of that. So it doesn't necessarily mean the player characters get arrested in that in that event. And ultimately, do you think that when there's there's the temptation to bring the force of the law down on investigators, is that sometimes a case of not so much trying to present realistic consequences or verisimilitude or anything like that, but Sometimes it's the GM actually really wanting to punish the players for moral transgressions. Oh, I would really hope not, because that's seriously dodgy territory. The reason I ask this is the number of times, I, particularly on Reddit, I've seen in the RPG subreddit, maybe every now and then in the Call of Cthulhu one, questions from, I assume, very new keepers, which seems to boil down to, my players have done something I don't like, how do I punish them for it? And it's that classic thing of using in-character solutions to what are fundamentally out-of-character problems. I do wonder whether sometimes the threat of imprisonment or the threat of arrest might be used in such a way. Have either of you ever seen that happen or got any experiences of it? No, I haven't seen it happen and I haven't experienced it. But then again, I know I have been very lucky with the groups that I've played with and with the groups that mm. I've run things for um, at conventions. There's only once I ever had two murder hobos and that was for a, a different game and the players jumped on them and shut them down. I didn't have to. Oh, nice. Um, yeah, I mean, I was running <laughs> a game for 13 people at the time, which I will never, ever do again because that was a stupidly huge number. But yeah, no, wow. the two people just turned up and decided they were just going to start murdering the other characters for no other reason than they just wanted to. And the rest of the players just shut them down completely. I know I've had something of a charmed life, touch wood. So no, I've not seen that. No, I can't really say I have. Not that springs to mind. I have played, not for a long, long time, not since my university days, but I certainly have played with GMs who consider themselves to be moral arbiters and have very definitely used game mechanics as a way of punishing players. I've not seen it happen in Call of Cthulhu, but when I see questions like this come up online, I always flash back to those days, and I can absolutely see that being the case particularly, like I say, for inexperienced keepers. And if that's the case, I mean, the advice I'd always offer is don't. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, if you've got a problem with how your players are acting, tell them, talk to them about it. Don't come up with an overwhelming number of police officers or something like that to pummel them into submission. Yeah, I suppose that's the, it's the question, isn't it? Why are you doing this? Is it because it is a good storytelling technique will help build a really good collaborative storytelling experience or are you doing it to punish the players and if you are doing it to punish the players then don't as you say just be like an adult talk to them work out what it is that's not not working for all of you and sort it out like reasonable people because 
using in-game mechanics to punish people for their behaviour is only going to lead to more resentment and the problem's only going to get bigger and worse. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. It is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. First of all, thank you to you for listening to the podcast. Thank you to anyone who has ever backed us on Patreon. And we have a bunch of new people to thank by name. Yep, thanks very much to Joanna Swan. And thank you very much to Michael Kremen. And thanks to Targrad. And thank you very much to Matthews Lukomsky. And I will throw the usual caveat in here. If I have completely mangled your name, please do let us know and we will have another pass at it another time and try not to mangle it. Indeed. And thanks to Hui Am. And thank you very much to Emil Varbach. And thanks to the wonderfully named Hobo Hotep. Oh, I'd like that. And thank you very much to M. And finally, thanks to Brian. And if you have enjoyed The Good Friends of Jackson Lies, please do let people know. Whether this means leaving a review on your favourite podcast site uh, or just letting other people know about it via social media or, well, just in casual conversation, just slip it in there unobtrusively like product placement you can be proud of. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Lynn. And I'd like to ask if there's anything, you know, you'd like to, uh, any message you'd like to get out to people, anything you'd like to plug, tell people where they can find you on the internet. Oh, right. Well, thank you first very much for having me. Uh, It's been lovely. It's always good to chat to you two about gaming and and getting up to mischief in games. (laughs) In terms of um, to everyone, well, stay safe and have fun gaming. Play lots of Call of Cthulhu. You know, it's, it's not safe out there. Stay indoors and play games. It's much safer and warmer. In terms of plugging things, well, we've already plugged the Keeper's Tips book, but keep your eyes open for Regency Cthulhu, which will probably be the next release in PDF, coming hopefully not too, not too soon or too not. Yes, you know what I mean. <laughs> and if you want to find me, I suppose the best place is still probably Twitter, where I am at Cogs and Cakes. Well, thank you again, Lynn, for for joining us and for filling in. That's been absolutely marvellous chatting with you again. <laughs> So thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. Okay, well, you've been listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. A cheerio from me. And a goodbye from me, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) Hello? Blasphemoustomes.com With all the croakiness in our throats, I think the uncut version of this is going to end up sounding like the fucking frog calls. <laughs> <laughs>